Hello and welcome to the Transforming Lives Together podcast, a ministry of St. Bartholomew's Anglican Church in Tonawanda, New York. This is episode 5 of the podcast, and we will continue with Life's Meaning and Purpose, an in-depth study of the Gospel of John, taught by the rector of St. Bartholomew's, Father Arthur Ward. In this episode, Father Ward will finish unpacking chapter 1, focusing on verses 35 through 51. If you're just starting to listen to this podcast, we invite you to check out the first four episodes to get caught up to speed with this study. We want to thank you for listening, and we pray you are blessed by what you're about to hear as we turn it over now to Father Ward. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. God, the Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus, who lives in us through your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would uh, enlighten our minds and help us to see clearly the power and the majesty and the incredible wisdom that is uh, shown in this gospel that points us to who Jesus is and uh, what it means to be in relationship with him and and how we walk with him uh, by faith. So we pray that you would anoint this study and uh, encourage us in our walks with you. We thank you and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Something I did not mention that was in your notes from study number two. And that was the fact that in terms of the timing of when the Gospel of John was written, most scholars date it to about 85 A.D., 85 to 90 A.D. And if you recall, in the 1800s, in Germany, there had developed in academia there a school of higher criticism that really sought to debunk the uh, traditional understanding and authority of God's Word and try to make it seem as if it was a hodgepodge of documents that had been put together over centuries and that the traditional understanding of who wrote each book was wrong and, and they went on and on and on. And one of their contentions was the Gospel of John because of its theological nature and how it unpacks who Jesus is, the Gospel of John must have been written in 150 A.D. Well, in 1935, 100 years after that German school of higher criticism came up with this idea, in 1935, an archaeologist discovered a fragment from the Gospel of John, which we now identify as John chapter 18, And they have dated that to about, at the latest, 135 A.D. Now what I did not mention last week or in our first week together was that where that fragment was found. It was found in Egypt. So because it was found in Egypt away from the original area of where John would be in Ephesus in Asia Minor, it's a couple hundred, well, 300 miles away, it would have taken a number of decades to circulate that far in advance. And so we know that the Gospel of John had to have been written at least at the end of the first century. The evidence within the Gospel itself indicates that it could very well have been written before the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Remember, Jesus was crucified in about 30 A.D. And so in just a generation, we had the accounts and the miracles and the teachings of Jesus being spread by his disciples, and being written down by his followers. And then these were then in turn shared, and that's how you 
had the gospel go out throughout the Roman Empire. By the preaching of the Word, by continuing in the study of the Law and the Prophets, which would be the Hebrew Scriptures, our Old Testament, and by then sharing the teachings of Jesus, as well as the letters that Paul wrote to the churches to give them further understanding of how they are to move forward in the faith and ministry. Of course, there were many other writings, but it is the writings that we have today that God, by His divine providence and through the work of His Holy Spirit, have preserved for us uh, over almost 2,000 years. So that's just a little background. Remember, the purpose of John's Gospel. The title of the study of li- is Life's Meaning and Purpose. And hopefully we're, we're starting to understand that To find my purpose and meaning in life, I need to know my Creator. And my Creator, my Father, has revealed Himself in the person of His Son, Jesus, so that when I know Jesus, I'm knowing the God Almighty, the God of the universe. And so, John writes that the purpose of John's Gospel, his Gospel is, these have been written. What have been written? The signs that Jesus has performed. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So who Jesus is, do we believe or not to believe? If we believe and trust in Him, then we're going to have that fullness of life. Then we're going to have that meaning and purpose. The common denominator throughout John's Gospel is belief, is who Jesus is, and what Jesus has done, His signs. So signs, Jesus and then belief. And all three point us to what uh, we're to be about as his followers. Now here's again the geography, just as a review. Galilee in the north. John's Gospel spends a little time in Galilee, like tonight we're going to be looking, uh, after we complete chapter 1, at Jesus' first miracle at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. But most of John centers around Jesus' ministry in the south to down towards Jerusalem, in in Jerusalem itself. And remember, John's Gospel is unique as opposed to the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels, because Jesus, it deals with Jesus and His interpersonal relations with people. It's one-on-one. Or it's Jesus with a small group of folks. Uh, Not like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which deals more with Jesus preaching to the multitudes, even though There are a few examples of that in John's Gospel, but it's predominantly one-on-one interpersonal relationships. Last week, we unpacked who Jesus is as the Word. The Word became flesh. He dwelt among us. And then we talked about how John the Baptist testified to who Jesus is. And Jesus' first disciples were actually disciples of John the Baptist. So after we see and hear the testimony of John the Baptist... The Apostle John now takes us to Jesus' first exposure with his first disciples. And that's where we pick off at verse 35. Again, the next day, John, John the Baptist now, not the Apostle, was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. Now this is the second time John the Baptist identifies who Jesus is. The Lamb of God. Remember the first time he said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That theme of Jesus as the sacrifice for the sins of not just Israel, but for the entire world, is found throughout the Gospels, but it's highlighted in this title, Lamb of God. 
And so we see it repeated. And remember, in the Scriptures, whenever something's repeated, we have to take special notice. The two disciples heard Him speak, and they followed Jesus. What is the heart of life's meaning and purpose? It's following a person. It's following Jesus Christ. You've heard me say it before. It's not original to me. But following Jesus is not about following a code or a creed or a church. It's about following Him. How do we discern if someone is on the money? How do we discern if a philosophy is right? How do we discern if a religion is right? What do they teach about Jesus? What do they say about who He is? What do they say about what He has said? How do they respond to Christ? Do they honor Him for who He truly is? The Mormons don't. They believe He's the brother of Lucifer. They believe He's a created being. The Jehovah Witnesses don't. They believe He is a created being. He was made. Christian science doesn't. The Muslims don't. Hindus don't. Buddhists don't. No one does. Unless you're a follower of Christ as God. And so... It's about a relationship. They follow Jesus. Isn't it neat? Because you're going to see now this aspect kind of emphasized about following a person. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what do you seek? That's an important question because what Jesus is most concerned about is what's on the inside And when it comes to following Him, what He's going to be most concerned about in people is why are they following Him? In other words, what is your motivation? What do you seek? They said to Him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher. Now, this is the first of many instances where you're you're going to see John the Apostle translate the Hebrew term, Rabbi, or Aramaic term, into the Greek. Now why would he do that? He would only do that if he was uh, writing to Greek Christians, to Gentile Christians who weren't familiar with the words. Remember the New Testament was written in Koine Greek. Koine Greek was the common language of the Roman Empire, like English is today, the common language of commerce today. And so this, again, if you're interpreting things, this highlights the fact that the Gospel of John was first and foremost written to Gentile Christians or those who were Gentiles who were not yet Christian but needed to hear the gospel. So he translates it. It means teacher. Where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. God invites people. God could force us if he wanted to. He could force the entire world to worship and follow him, but he doesn't. He invites. So Jesus is inviting them. Come and you will see. In fact, that teaches us an important principle that the only way we can truly see God is if we respond to His invitation. The only way we can grow closer to God is if we actively seek after Him. So they came and saw where He was staying, and they stayed with Him that day. For it was about the tenth hour. Now there's two things that we get from these two last phrases. Very important. In terms of hot seed, I'm just sharing you how you interpret things, right? 
They stayed with him that day. Remember how we talk about Christianity is about a relationship? What are they doing? They're staying with Jesus. They're spending time with Jesus. They're interacting with Jesus. The person. And it was about the tenth hour. Now, why is that important? Because it's an example of an eyewitness account. The two disciples we're going to see, one is Andrew, but the other one is unnamed. The, other, the unnamed disciple, see it says here, verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew. Well, who was the other one? It was John. John who's writing. John is indicating that he was there because he identifies the exact time when it occurred, 10 a.m. The Romans calculated time like we do. 10 would be 10 hours after midnight. So in Roman time, that would be 10 a.m. You know, you go to some commentaries and they'll say, well, it might have been Jewish time. Jewish time was measured from 6 a.m. in the morning. So the 10th hour for Jewish time would be 4 p.m. But the fact that John was writing to Gentile Christians who would be familiar with Roman time, most likely it is 10 a.m. The point, though, being is that someone who includes such a specific detail about an event, in other words, the exact time, reflects that this is an eyewitness account. Only John and Andrew and Jesus himself would be able to share these details. And it's one of the reasons why it's only found in John's Gospel and it's not found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So then we read, one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. So there you go again. Messiah is the Hebrew. Christ is the Greek. So again, there's another indication that John is writing to Gentile or Greek Christians. He brought him to Jesus... Ah, see, that's what we're to do, right? Once we found the Lord, what does Jesus call us to do? Bring others to Him. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas or Cephas, depending on how you want to say it, which is translated Peter, which means rock. Now, why is this so important? Simon means someone who's kind of a hot-headed, impulsive But now uh, Jesus is saying, you're going to be Peter, you're going to be rock. Why is this so important? Why does Jesus change his name? Because Jesus is identifying who will be the greatest of the twelve apostles, Peter, right? But he's highlighting what he's going to do to Peter. He is going to change Peter's character. Peter is going to go from someone who's impulsive, someone who is prone to strike out in anger to a rock, to someone who is secure in their faith, someone who is solid, someone who doesn't waver, isn't tossed and turned by circumstances, someone who does not allow their emotions to control them because Jesus changes Peter from the inside out. He changes his character because, brothers and sisters, if I'm truly following Jesus, if I'm truly spending time with Jesus, then my character is going to be changed. Isn't that what's most important in our life? Is the change of your character to reflect the character of Christ. That's what it's all about. It's not about what's on the outside, it's about what's on the inside. And that involves character and the name highlights that transformation that only Jesus is going to bring. But not just in Peter's life, 
but in all of our lives. Now, before we go to the next section, any questions so far with what we have heard? Yes. John the Baptist, how in verse 36, mm-hmm. that'd be John the Baptist, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Yes. Okay. And John the Baptist, Elizabeth was carrying John the Baptist, mm-hmm. Baptist, and she heard the Virgin Mary speak. John in his stomach to receive the Holy Spirit? Well, no, no. John the Baptist was Jesus' first cousin. And John the Baptist, we're told, when Mary came to Elizabeth to announce that she was pregnant, John the Baptist, who was in the womb, leapt in his mother Elizabeth's uh, womb. Okay? So, that obviously John the Baptist, as a six-month baby in the womb, did not know what was going on, right? But the Holy Spirit, whatever, however it happened, it was significant enough that Elizabeth made note of it, and it ended up being preserved in the Gospel record. Does that make sense? to highlight that something miraculous, something spiritually significant was taking place. Okay, so everything about John the Baptist's life, the revelation came through John the Baptist by God. Yeah. Okay, so when, when he said, Behold the Lamb of God, the two disciples, the two, the two disciples heard that and followed him around the question comes in at. I know that they were waiting for the Messiah to come. Right. So how did they equate the Behold the Lamb of God with the Behold the Lamb of God? I'm thinking about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Right. How were right. they able to relate that to the Messiah? Well, that's a great question. Um, in the Hebrew Scriptures, there are there are hundreds of prophetic words, or I shouldn't say words, but prophetic verses that point to the coming of God's anointed one, a special person who is going to restore the glory to Israel, who is going to do a number of things. And that is all set forth in the Hebrew Scriptures. And that includes being a great high priest, being a warrior, being a sacrifice. So, for example, when we see the title Lamb of God, that really goes back to Isaiah 53, where it talks about Israel's suffering servant, that he is wounded for our transgressions, he's bruised for our iniquities, like a lamb led to the slaughter, and the chastisement that we deserve was laid on him. And so there was this aspect of the Messiah that reflected suffering, But when one studies the Scriptures, one also sees the triumphant aspect of the Messiah. In fact, one could argue that the triumphant uh, Scriptures and verses outnumber the suffering ones. 
And so human nature being as it is, that we like to kind of puff ourselves up and we like to wave the flag and we like to kind of assert ourselves, especially if we're oppressed. You could understand why the people during Jesus' time did not like the idea of Jesus being crucified, of Jesus allowing himself to be arrested, of Jesus, even though he confronted the hypocrisy of the religious leaders and stood for a kingdom that was not of this world and a kingdom that was diametrically opposed to the Caesar, it wasn't enough from a fleshly standpoint. And even, we need to understand, even as we hear these incredible titles of who Jesus is, the disciples aren't fully grasping this right now. These are really just nice, fancy terms for them that ring true, but they can't fully appreciate the magnitude of what these terms mean. We can now. Because we are after the death and resurrection of Jesus. We can now because we are 2,000 years. And so we need to understand that context is very important. And that's why we have to be very careful when we start judging others. Because oftentimes, the people that we're judging are not coming within the same context that we're coming at. It's only God who can judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That was a good question, and hopefully that was a sufficient answer. Okay, let's go on to the next section. The next day, he purposed. That's an important word, he purposed. Of course, he being capital, it's Jesus. Everything Jesus did was with the purpose of his Father in mind. Now that's a reminder for all of us. If we're truly having our character transformed from within, then our purposes must increasingly line up with God's purposes. It's why we pray, you know, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It's why Jesus even prayed in the garden, not my will be done, Father, but your will be done. And so we see that he purposed, his purpose. He's going to go to Galilee, and he found Philip, another one of his first disciples. And Jesus said to him, there you go, follow me. Follow. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, of the city of Andrew and Peter. Andrew and Peter, remember, are brothers, so they're all from the same hometown. Philip found Nathanael, and most believe that Nathanael is also Bartholomew, our patron saint Bartholomew. The uh, shield here has the filleting knives. It's not a really wonderful uh, reminder, but that's how he was killed. He was martyred. But Bartholomew, the reason why we believe Nathanael is the same as Bartholomew is when you compare the list, it seems to line up, and also Bartholomew is actually a surname, because Bar means son of, so Bartholomew, son of Lamu, I think that, that would be it. So uh, his full name would be Nathaniel Bartholomew. He finds Nathaniel and says to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Remember, whenever you see the law and the prophets, that's always a reference to our Old Testament, the 39 books of our Old Testament. That was the scripture, the inspired word during Jesus' day. So what this is doing, and why John the Apostle is including this, is this is bearing witness to the fact that Jesus actually is the one who fulfills the prophecies. He is actually the Messiah. Uh, he didn't come out of nowhere. He's not like a cult leader who comes out of nowhere that has no background at all, like Muhammad 
comes out of nowhere and says, all of a sudden I got these revelations from an angel and now I'm putting them all down. This is the Quran, and you need to follow it. Or Joseph Smith, who all of a sudden supposedly sees a vision of both the Father and the Son. I don't know if you know this, but that's how it's, the Father and the Son. Well, right there should be a warning sign. No man, what do we read in John's Gospel that was written 1800 years before Joseph Smith even arrived on the, came on the scene? It says, no man has seen the Father. It's the Son who's in the bosom of the Father that who has explained him. So by virtue of the fact that Joseph Smith says, I see two people, Father and Son, that should be a red flag. Whoa, you're going down the wrong road, buddy. And so we have the law and the prophets, Jesus, not coming out of nowhere. He has all that foundation behind him. He is the fulfillment of it. And but he's also a real person, an historical person. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathaniel said to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Ah, You see, there's a couple of things going on here. Um, Nathaniel's from Cana, which is a ways away. And Nazareth was probably a town that it's kind of like in western New York. I'm not going to say what town. <laughs> but just think of a town that might not have as much respect in western New York as another town or majority of towns, you know. Can any good thing come out of that place? But also it was because scripturally, and Nathaniel was a great student of the word, we're going to see why in a moment, but scripturally, there was no indication from the scriptures that Nazareth would have, would have any significant role in the coming of the Messiah or in the plan of God's salvation history. And Philip said to him, come and see. Ah, there's the invitation. Isn't it, wouldn't it be amazing if people would just give churches, give stuff a chance? Half the problem is people are so busy, they have such tunnel vision, that they don't even come and see. All of you are here because you came and saw. You sought the Lord. Yes, He reached out to you, but you sought Him. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to Him and said of Him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. So even though Nathanael said, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? He wasn't saying it in a looking down way as much of, really, is, is the Messiah coming out of there? That doesn't sound right to me. So Jesus is affirming his motivation. He's affirming what's on the inside, right? His character. Nathaniel said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. So what this highlights is Jesus is no ordinary human being because he saw. Nathaniel, in a place where he was not present. Now, on the surface, it sounds like Nathaniel was under the fig tree at a point, and Jesus let him know that. But we also need to know that under the fig tree was a euphemism in ancient Israel and Judaism that would refer to one who is studying the Law and the Prophets, one who's studying the Word. So it could also mean that Jesus said, hey, you know what? I saw you when you were studying my word. 
or the Word of God, the Law and the Prophets. And that kind of shook him up and said, well, how do you know I was studying that? And remember, too, that when it comes to what we have in the Scriptures, we are only getting the high points. We're only getting a few statements. You and I know that when we're engaged in conversation, when we're engaged in a matter, there's a lot going on. And so when we're reading the Scriptures, we have to be careful that we don't infer or impart our own bias into it or add stuff or wonder why stuff is not there that we think should be there. What is there is only what God wants to be there. And it's to instruct us specifically for a specific purpose. So that's where people sometimes get off track. They get too hung up on, well, why is it said this way? And why didn't he include this? And why is this missing? And, you know, and then they start to be not only critics of the word, but they stand in judgment over the word rather than allowing the word to judge them. And that really goes to the root of pride. Because we, as James writes, we are to approach the Word of God humbly. So, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And so there's a supernatural revelation there. And he, he states it, not fully knowing what it fully means at that point. And Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe you will see greater things than these? And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. In other words, he's saying that, Nathaniel, you're going to see a lot more. God is going to supernaturally show you things. You are going to witness who I really am. And ultimately, what's the focal point? It's on Jesus Himself. The angels are, in, are descending and ascending. And, and that takes us back to the vision that Jacob saw, Jacob's ladder in Genesis. The difference is that there is no ladder. The ladder is Jesus. Jesus is our means of entrance into heaven. Jesus is our means of being able to be in relationship with the living God. And it's the angels who come and go back and forth Ultimately, the angels derive their power from the Son of God, and yet the Son of God, we're told in the Scriptures, was made for a little while lower than the angels. He became like us. Hence, the title, the Son of Man, which was Jesus' favorite title, used over 80-some times in the Gospels. And the Son of Man doesn't highlight so much His deity, it highlights His humanity. He's one like you and me. It also is a term that fulfills the prophecy in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where Daniel sees one like a son of man who comes at the end of the age and all the nations worship before him. And he establishes God's kingdom forever. So that's all being said in this last part of John chapter 1. A wonderful promise Jesus gives You've been listening to the Transforming Lives Together podcast, a ministry of St. Bartholomew's Anglican Church in Tonawanda, New York. 
For more information about the church, including a list of our service times, please visit our website at www.stbartstown.org. Again, that's www.stbartstown.org. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a five-star rating or a positive review. Both will help in reaching more people with this podcast. If you're on Facebook, head over to facebook.com slash transforming lives together podcast again that's facebook.com slash transforming lives together podcast and give us a like we hope you will tune in next time as we continue with life's meaning and purpose an in-depth study of the gospel of john until then we leave you with these verses from paul's letter to the romans since we have now been justified by his blood how much more shall we be saved from god's wrath through him For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. God bless.